0: All right, well, beautiful scene. If I not met you, your name is Aaron, and I'm the preaching pastor uh, here at Red Village, and I'm glad you're with us uh, this morning. Uh, if you're feeling a little sluggish, uh, don't overreact. We're in the middle of winter, and so I think for some of us, you know, I think they're starting to feel that, a little bit of the winter blues, and so, um, you know, winter's going to just hard, so I'm that much more grateful that you're with us today. Uh, this is kind of a, one of the means that God gives us in this life just to kind of help us uh, through maybe some weary seasons like uh, we're in right now. Okay, so that being said, if you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation 20. Our textual study today is going to be verses 1 through 6. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there are a few Bibles kind of scattered throughout the room. And Revelation is at the very end, it's actually the last book of the Bible, and it's on page 602, if you want to grab one of those Bibles. And so I'm gonna read through the sacred text, and I'm gonna pray, and then uh, we'll get to work. And if you're visiting with us, so what we do here is we just, I do my best I can just to kind of go verse by verse. And so, if you open up the Bible, keep it open, okay? So that's gonna be uh, the roadmap for how our sermon's gonna be going uh, this morning, just kind of walking through the passage, okay? So that being said, let me uh, read, uh, starting in verse one. So what the Bible says: Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and seated on them were those of whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but to be priests of God and of Christ And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it is good for us to be here today. Lord, we're grateful for your holy word that you've given to us. And we're grateful also for the Holy Spirit who opens up your holy word to lead us and guide us to all truth. Lord, this morning, whatever I say that might be true, I pray that would land on hearts. Lord, where there's air in my thoughts, please keep that from uh, these people here. I just want your truth, Lord. Praise pray so in Jesus' name, amen. So i mentioned a few times already to start of our study of Re- at the end of Revelation. We started a few weeks back. The context of which this letter is written was during an increase in persecution for Christians. Where Christians are being so persecuted that an increased number of them were actually dying as martyrs which no doubt was causing the first century Christians to be tempted to not only wonder or doubt if suffering for their faith was being done in vain, but also to wonder or doubt if following after Christ was actually worth it. Uh, wondering, maybe doubting, perhaps it would be better to actually leave the faith to deny Christ so they might not live with suffering like they were. And this context, this struggle, this temptation for God's people in this context was actually the same of the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament book of Hebrews where the original readers of Hebrews, who were Jewish Christians, faced an increase of suffering and persecution. And this seems obvious just by the context of Hebrews if you read through that book. And this increase of suffering, of persecution, was causing these early Christians to be tempted to like, actually leave Christ and go back to their traditional Jewish roots. And because this was such a strong, growing temptation for these early Christians, the book of Hebrews was written to help them see the folly of doing that help them see that indeed Jesus is better than the Old Testament faith. Because in the end, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament faith. And because Jesus is the one who is leading his people of faith as exiles, strangers in this present life, into a better life that is to come, to a city that has a foundation, whose designer and builder is God. So in Hebrews, because Jesus is indeed better, because indeed Jesus is leading his people into a better life that is to come, the writer of Hebrews was trying to encourage the Christians to keep on in the faith. In fact, he even said this. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, there through his flesh, and since so we have a great high priest over the house of God, and he says this, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, it goes on to say this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging, or or encouraging one another, and all the more so as you see the day drawing near. Now, I share this to start off this morning, not just point out a point, or not just being a point of reference that the context or motivation behind Hebrews, and revelation is the same, uh, to help encourage weary Christians who seem to be entertaining the idea of leaving the faith, but I share this with you today to remind us of the application, the primary purpose of the book of Revelation, which is a book that does detail the day that is to come, this day that is drawing near that Hebrews 10 um, that I just read talked about which is a day that we are to see through the eyes of faith to not only help us to persevere in this life, even if this life is filled with suffering, that we are to persevere by continuing to hold fast, continuing to confess Jesus is Lord, but as this great eternal day is to come, it is to be before us in ways that we are loving one another, in ways that we are spurring on one another, that we are connecting one another, that we are meeting together with one another, in ways that we are building each other up, in love, and good works, that we're encouraging one another in the faith. Because that's really at the forefront, how we are to see and read and apply the book of Revelation. So so the book of Revelation is not just like a treasure map filled with clues, different details on how the end will come. Revelation, the details of Revelation, have been passed down to us through the sacred scriptures to better help us faithfully live to faithfully persevere, to faithfully love each other well in this present life as we eagerly await the day to come. Okay, now, before we dig back into our Texas study this morning, that does have details that speak towards the end that is to come. Just a couple things for us. So first, just a reminder where we left off last week. So last week we had a very heavy, in fact, a terrifying passage. For all things or all people who war against Christ. So we read last week, this is not a war that the enemies of Christ can win. Rather, when Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, he will come back in great glory where he will fully and completely destroy his enemies, showing no mercy. I mentioned last week, while this is a terrifying reality for all those who war against Christ, this is actually a great comfort, a great encouragement to those who do bow the knee to Jesus Christ. All things in this life that war, And fight against God, those things will not win out. Including things like the sin that just holds so tightly to our hearts, or sickness, or death, those things, they will not win out. When Christ returns, they will fully be eliminated from God's people. So they enter into eternal life, none of the things will be present. Rather, eternal life will be filled just with peace and joy. Second, let me point out our text is easily one of the most debated passages. Uh, in the Bible, in terms of how to read it and to interpret it. Now, the debate is actually on a few different levels. Uh, but the primary level of our passage debate is the time frame of the passage. OK, so let me give you two general thoughts on how it relates to the timeline. So first, for those who might label themselves as like amillennial or postmillennial, is your viewpoint of the end. So am means like without. So without like a physical millennium, which we'll talk about more in just a bit. Christ will return without this physical reign. Or post, meaning like the afterwards, the millennial will come after, or Christ will come after this reign is complete. So in these two camps, they see what we read last week, the events of Revelation 19, and what we're about to work through today, and the next couple of weeks, actually Revelation 20, they see this detailing the same event from different vantage points. Or maybe said like Revelation 20 is filling in some of the details that took place in chapter 19. Okay, and this could be true. Right? There's many Christians from very early on in church history, have read Revelation 19 and 20 in this way, like the same thing. So for the odd millennial, the thousand years that our, church, our text speaks about, so this is symbolic for like the church age, where throughout the church age, there's like this tension between God's favor going forward through his gospel, through his church, while at the same time, there's real struggles with like forces that oppose the gospel and the church, and this tension will remain until Christ returns you know, without a physical millennium for the day of judgment, For the post millennial, they would argue, or they would agree with the um, amillennial, that the thousand year reign is symbolic for the age of the church. And they both would say we're actually living out Revelation 20, kind of like right now. However, where they differ is not just with the physical millennium, but also with the tension between God's favor and the struggle of forces who oppose God. So the post millennial, they would argue that over time, the tensions will actually become less and less. Because as the gospel goes forward, the millennial kingdom is going forward. And eventually, over time, those who stand in opposition will have less and less of a grip. They will become weaker and weaker. So, in this present life, the earth will increasingly become filled with peace. Okay, part of the reason why post millennials see that, because many in this camp would argue that Satan, which we'll see in our passage today, um, he actually already is bound. Okay, so, he is not able to deceive in the ways he once did. Okay? So, a lot of good Christians. Right? who love God's word, fall into these camps. You see Revelation 19, Revelation 20, as the same event. And no doubt, I'm sure there's some here this morning that, that fall into one of these camps. Then the second thought, which actually is what I believe, and how I'll be teaching for our text uh, to our, to our sermon today, is that Revelation 19 and 20 are two different events, events that are actually still yet to come. With the first of these future events happened in chapter 19, which we looked at last week followed by was happening in our text today in Revelation 20. Now, those who hold this view often refer referred to as pre-millennial. I mean, we're living right now pre or before the millennial kingdom is to come. For myself, I would most closely identify with that which is called historic pre-millennial. Okay? And with the term historic pre-millennial, label that way, you know, historic is two basic reasons. So first, this is actually the oldest known viewpoint in church history, in terms of how to like read and understand this passage. In fact, the earliest who wrote on this viewpoint, this premillennial viewpoint, were just like a generation removed from the time of the apostles. where some of the famous figures in church history who held to this, the early church Christians, were actually discipled by pastors who were discipled by the apostles. Okay, so this is a historic view, it's old. But two, the label historic premillennial is given to distinguish between perhaps like the newest of all major viewpoints. Which is labeled like dispensational premillennial, which has been pretty popular in our society the last hundred years or so. Which is a teaching that includes like the rapture of God's people to heaven, which will take place before a seven year tribulation that was to come to the earth, which would be like the last chance for unbelievers to, like, to repent and bow the knee to Christ before judgment was to come. Where in those seven years, God would do like maybe a special work among Israel to bring Jewish people to faith to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then after the seven-year tribulation, then there'll be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Now contrast that. Most historic premillennials, I could mention I am, often see these numbers more as like symbolically. The thousand years more symbolic than literal. And those in prehistoric historic premillennial camp don't think God will be like removing his people or like rapturing his people before the start of some type of seven-year period of tribulation. Rather than the camp that I'm in right now, could change. uh, We believe that we'll go through the tribulation on the earth. And we'll do so in ways where God will persevere his people through all tribulation that might come our way so that we will continue to profess and hold on to our faith. Okay, now, I could say a lot more about the different camps in church history, uh, but I want this to be a sermon and not just a lecture. And I do want to spend most of our time in our text. Also, let me mention, I mentioned this last week, so our favorite Uncle Wes, so he's actually holding a, a Sunday school class. Uh, in a couple weeks, um, over several weeks, that we'll actually be watching a video series that will talk much more in depth on the different camps. How those throughout church history have thought it was best to read the scriptures in terms of the end times, including how to best read Revelation 19 and 20. Okay, so all this stuff I just said, if it's maybe confusing you or maybe interests you, I do want to encourage you to attend that class. Um, And as you take that class, just note, as you go through all different study material, learn all these different things throughout church history, note that in the end, each camp actually has a lot in common when it comes to like the big picture idea concerning the last things, where each camp has an agreement that some of the main takeaways that we should have to think about the return of Christ is that we're holding on to our confession, that we're holding on to ways that we're connecting with one another to build each other up in love, good works, and encouragement. Okay. Now, that is a little bit more of a lengthy introduction. Please look back with me at verse 1 of our text. As I mentioned, I'll be teaching this this morning out of a historic pre view. So verse 1 says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Okay, Now go back to the intro. Depending on how you're understanding of the word then, your interpretation of the details of the text will be different. Okay, as I mentioned for some, the word then signifies taking a look from a different vantage point where John got to see the events in chapter 19 from one vantage point, then he got to see the same event from a different vantage point to see different details taking place, which is certainly possible. There's good arguments to read it this way. However, for me, the word then, this is like a chronological time marker, where John saw the events unfold in chapter 19, as those finish, as he kept watching, then, after that, then he saw an angel coming down from heaven, doing so with the key of the bottomless pit. Now the key, all agree, this is, bad, uh, is to be read symbolically, as like symbolic for like having authority. And this angel has this key because the crucified and risen Christ is the one who actually has the authority that this angel is now implementing, which is the authority that Christ has over the realm of the dead, which is what the bottomless pit or the abyss in our text is speaking towards. We're in the bottomless pit, in this realm of the dead. We see that there's a great chain, a great chain that is there to keep, to hold all those banished to the bottomless pit. This is a chain that's so strong, so secure, that it can never be broken by those held by it. And as John saw this angel coming down with the authority of Christ, reading verse 2, that he then seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Now, from my viewpoint, in the cross and resurrection, Jesus clearly defeats the devil. But now, here it is, we're waiting for judgment to come for Satan, which would be judgment would be completed at the end of chapter 20. So for me, this is what I think about, maybe think of like a war, where an enemy is defeated, captured, and then he has to wait to stand trial for war crimes. Wait for judgment to come. Wait where they'd be locked in prison and wait their sentence. I kind of think that's what's taking place here with Satan. We also mentioned here the dragon, the agent serpent. This description of Satan is actually one that comes up at other points in the book of Revelation. If you want to look for that next time you read through the book of Revelation. And scholars agree that these terms, these descriptions of Satan, is actually picking up on Genesis chapter 3. So remember that story? Remember there in Genesis 3 how Satan came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, doing so in the form of a, of a serpent. And as Satan came to our first parents, he did so by like kissing out lies of temptation, where he was able to deceive our first parents in ways they fell prey to his lies, which were lies concerning like the goodness of God. So that Satan, the ancient serpent, was able to get Adam and Eve to join him in the rebellion against God and his good rule over their life, which was the first sin, a sin that the book of Uh, Genesis tells us, brings a curse with it. A curse that has affected all parts of God's good creation in Genesis 1 and 2. By the way, in Genesis 3, as Satan came to Adam and Eve as a snake, Adam should have cut off the head of the snake. As mentioned, rather than cutting off the head, Adam entertained the temptation. Adam listened to the temptation. Adam gave in to the temptation. He sinned. And sin has spread like cancer to all parts of creation, where all parts, including all people, including all of us today, we have been affected by it. The point that the scripture is clear that now all have sinned, by birth, by choice, all have sinned, all have fell short of the glory of God. Okay, back to our text. As Satan was seized, we see then he was bound for a thousand years. And this is the first reference in our passage to this thousand, this millennium here, this thousand year um, that keeps coming up multiple times in our text today as well as our text next week and these references to thousand years this is why we have the, the different um, camps right historic premillennial dispensational premillennial amillennial postmillennial it's all because of the thousand years here as i mentioned the start for the amillennial the postmillennial this is a symbolic for a period of time so not a thousand literal thousand years but symbolic for the entire church age for the premillennial, to say it again, this is where I'm currently at, there's a divide, whether this is like a literal thousand years. Uh, personally, I think this also is more symbolic to communicate a long period of time. Let me also mention what you mentioned earlier for the amillennial, the postmillennial. Right, we already think we're in this millennial reign. And they see what's happening here in verse 2, this binding of Satan is already taking place. Though, as mentioned, there's a little bit of disagreement on the extent to which Satan is bound. Some say he's isn't fully bound, but he still has some influence, while others say, no, he actually is fully bound. For the premillennials, because this event has yet to come, it's in the future, we would say Satan actually is not bound. Rather, Satan, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, which he'll do until he is bound in our text today, where he will sit in the cell of a bottomless pit, where he have to wait for his sentence to fully come his way. For all this destruction, all the devastation, he has God or caused God's people and His good creation. Because we believe Satan is still active, this is why we are to be alert, sober-minded as we walk through this life. Our defeated enemy—he's actually still on the prowl. Verse three. As Satan awaits his sentence, we read that he'll be thrown into a pit, and there'll be a door of the pit which will be shut behind him, and it will be sealed so that his influence will be no longer found. In the text, no longer will we be able to deceive the nations. However, in the text, after the thousand years has come to an end, we see that he'll be released for a little while. Satan will be released, we'll be able to deceive one last time. However, unlike what happened in Genesis 3, and really all throughout church history, this time after his release, Satan's temptation, it will, it will fail. He will not get any to fall prey to his deception. Now, before we go any further, let me hit pause here explain a bit more on premillennials, just to help uh, ex- explain what I think is happening here in verses two and three. I'll say it again for both on-millennial and postmillennial, in different ways, they believe the millennium in our passage is already started. But for the premillennial, this thousand years, whether it's literal or symbolic, this is yet to come. So in the previous passage, Christ returns, defeats his enemies. And then after that, on the earth, Christ will set up a symbolic thousand-year reign where in this reign, it will just be Christ and his people, the people that he raises back to life, where Christ and his people live together for an extended period of time of peace and harmony because the enemies have just been defeated, because Satan has been bound, which we'll talk about more in just a second. But for me, this is what's happening here. And this almost feels like almost like a redo of creation, which will be fully completed, started in chapter one throughout the end of Revelation, we get there in a couple weeks, and the new heavens and the new Earth. So to me, this thousand-year reign feels a lot like Genesis 1 and 2, which, to say it again, certainly Revelation 21 and 22 are presented as. But this part here in chapter 20, this part of like almost like a redo of creation, Christ and his people dwelling together for a time of peace. To me, this feels a lot like Genesis 1 and 2, where none of the effects of a fall will be present. In this 1,000-year reign, there will be no sin, no death, no evil. But then, at the end of that time, it almost will be like a redo of Genesis 3, where Satan will be released to tempt mankind one last time, to give temptations like he did to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. However, this time... Unlike what happened in Genesis 3, where Adam failed, it's mentioned, he should have cut off the head of the snake, this time, in Satan's last, final temptations, the second Adam, the better Adam, Jesus, the Christ, he will triumph, which will be starting next uh, verse 7 of our text next week. And in his triumph, Christ will cut off the head of the snake. And as he cuts off the head of the snake, Revelation 21, 22, Jesus, the second, the better Adam, will fully usher in the new heavens, new earth. It will all be complete. So all that was lost at the fall of mankind in Genesis 3 will be restored for all eternity. Now, I could clearly not be seeing this correctly. in terms that's happening in verses 2 and 3 and and how they might relate to Genesis 1 and 2. But at least to me, I think this is taking place here. Now, as I say else to you, there are aspects of this that do feel odd to me. It feels a little odd for the people of God dwelling with Christ on the earth, before the official coming of the new heavens and the new earth in chapters 21, 22. It does feel a little strange to me that as Christ returns, there's almost like this in-between period, like this thousand years, before all of Christ's blessings are fully experienced in new heavens and new earth. And this is why I can actually go flip back and forth in my mind a little bit between historic premillennial and amillennial who don't see this in-between period, But at least for me, that's how I see the passage uh, today. Okay, let's keep going after Satan is released for a little while, to give his last temptations. Verse 4, John wrote that he saw thrones. And on the thrones sat those whom have authority to judge that was committed to them, or authority to judge that was like, given to them. Now, it's hard to know exactly who these are, these characters are on the throne that John saw. Perhaps this is the 24 elders who we met in chapter 19 and a few other places in Revelation. But perhaps this is actually a reference to those who have put their faith in Christ in this life, which I tend to think that's who these people are. These people sitting on the thrones. These these are Christians. These are all of God's people for all time, all those who have turned to put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have been his witnesses. So in the end, now they become judges. 1 Corinthians 6 says this about God's people. says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incomplete to try to tri- uh, try trivial cases do you not know that we are to judge angels so i think that's actually what's happening here with these people on the or these characters on the throne that verse 4 is a fulfillment of what's going to happen here keep going we see that not only did he see the people on the throne we see he also saw the souls of those who have been headed or have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of god which are those who do not worship the beast or its image or receive its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Obviously, these are martyrs, those who have died for their faith, who, unlike the people we met at the end of chapter 13, who worship the beast, these people, all the way to the end, they were worshiping Christ, even unto death. And this year, this is part of the ongoing encouragement and comfort to God's people in the book of Revelation or as mentioned already a few times in this sermon series, including the uh, intro today, the context of when this verse was written, like martyrdom is becoming increasingly a grim reality for God's people, where they no doubt had to feel tempted to be discouraged, to doubt, to wonder if holding on to their faith was worth it. But then as they read this here in our text today, where throughout Revelation they continue to be reminded that even if they died for Christ, that dying was not in vain. But in the end, Christ would honor them. By the way, it's not just like martyrdom has been an issue during which this was written, but really the entire age of the church, including today, people have died and continue to die for faith in Jesus Christ. So for God's people of all time to read these words in Revelation 20, right, this is an encouragement, it's a comfort. It is there to help us to take heart, to take courage, to continue to persevere all the way to the end. Knowing Even if we die by martyrdom, that's not how the story ends. That death is not the end of our story. Rather, Christ will raise and honor all those who turn to trust in Him. I also mention here that the people of God on the throne, the martyrs who are held in honor, this is what I believe, these are the people who will fill the earth with Christ, In this thousand-year reign, back to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were instructed to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth with people created in the image of God. Now here, Revelation 20, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he fills the earth with people who did not worship the image of the beast, but worshiped him. Those who persevered in their faith. This is basically what the end of verse 4 is telling us in our text, about those who did not worship the beast, that they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. However, verse five, if you want to take your eyes there, as the dead in Christ were raised to reign, we see that the rest of the dead, those who did worship the beast, they did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. The text tells us this is the first resurrection. Let me hit pause again to mention here: your view of the millennium will dictate how you read and understand this phrase, the first resurrection, or also said, how you understand this phrase, the first resurrection, will dictate how you re, uh, might view the millennium. For me, for those in a pre-millennial camp, this first resurrection, this is a resurrection of a, like a physical resurrection from the dead for those who are in Christ, where in their physical resurrection they'll be given new bodies as they fill the earth and live with Christ for the thousand-year reign. However, others, amillennial, postmillennial, this first resurrection, this is more of a reference to like a spiritual resurrection, where one is moved from being spiritually dead trespasses and trespasses in sin, but then by grace through faith, they've been made spiritually alive to Christ, which, which we know this is the hallmark of the church age that we live in, those being made alive to Christ, who are born anew, born again, as the church is made up of people who have been spiritually resurrected. However, as mentioned for me, this feels different than just a spiritual resurrection. Although I do agree, for those physically resurrected, these are the ones who have been spiritually resurrected in this life. To me, this feels more like a physical resurrection that John saw. So in our text, those who have tasted this first resurrection, they'll be raised. They will reign with Christ for the millennium, which is what verse six, which concludes our passage of study this morning, tells us. Verse six. You want to take your eyes there. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Now, as a reminder, we talked about in chapter 19. We worked through that passage. The blessed there. That's an important word. So in chapter 19, remember, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right. This word blessed is a key word in Revelation. It communicates peace. Joy, there's seven of these blessings throughout Revelation which communicates just the fullness, the completeness of peace and joy for those who worship Jesus Christ. Verse six, our text today, this is one of the sevenfold blessings found throughout this book. Blessed is the one who shares in this first resurrection. In our text, for them, who have this eternal blessing on them, we see the second death has no power which in Revelation, the second death, this is a reference to eternal judgment that is to come. Those who are blessed in Christ, who have tasted this first resurrection, they have no concerns about the judgment of God falling on them. Because in Jesus Christ, the great Lamb who was slain, judgment over sin fell on him instead of them. Because through Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain, their debt of sin has already been paid in full by the blood of Jesus. So that by faith in Jesus Christ, they are forgiven. Amen. And by the way, this forgiveness of sin, the blessed promise of the first resurrection is to come. This is, this is available to any and all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, who confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, who believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Friends, you will find forgiveness. That is the promise. And not only you find forgiveness, you have this promise of eternal life, this blessed eternal life that is to come and all the benefits that Christ gives to his people. Including the promise, including the benefit that ends our passage in verse 6. With the people of God being eternal priests of God and of Christ where they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, now let me just mention here the word priest. You see the word priest here in our text. And as you think through that, I'm sure some of your minds probably go back to like the Old Testament priesthood, where the priests were in charge of ministering before the Lord at the tabernacle. like Maybe like Exodus 19 it speaks about that, among many other places. Where God instituted the Old Testament priesthood through Aaron, the brother of Moses, And if your mind goes there when you hear the word priest, that actually is appropriate. But I actually think this here in Revelation 20, when you read the word priest, I think our minds actually have to even go further back than Exodus 19, even further back than the Old Testament priesthood found in Aaron. And our minds—I think our minds actually go all the way back, once again, to the Garden, to Adam, where in Genesis 2, Adam is given instructions to like work, keep, care for. Protect the garden. Those are very similar words, similar verbs that the priests were given when to work, protect, care for the tabernacle. Where in Exodus, the tabernacle is almost resented as like a new creation. So in the book of Genesis, Adam, in many ways, he's the first priest. And for us in our text today, I think that's what's happening here in this millennial reign for God's people are to be like Adam-like figures who reign with Christ, the great second Adam, were there to be priests of God the Father and of his Christ. Priests in this symbolic 1,000-year reign were to care for, work, protect the earth before the final judgment was to come. And the new heavens and new earth are fully present, which is Revelation 21 22. Okay, Now, for us here, how I want to finish off our time as we think through this passage I do want to do so in thinking through about this great day approaching in ways that we're actually applying the truths of what we see in this passage into our hearts today. So so the details of this text, they they are important. Confusing, no doubt, they're very confusing, but they are important. And I do want to encourage us as a church to humbly try to wrestle through the details of this passage, to try to best understand the best that we can you know, how this millennium will look and what is that to, uh, to be. However, as important as those details are, I do think the primary importance of the book of Revelation in terms of us reading it is to cause us to persevere in our faith today. Where we're like holding on to our confession today. We're holding on in ways that we're connecting one another with one another to stir one another up to love and to good works. To, to really encourage each other Today. As we wait and long for this day to come. So, from our text today, just three things that I think that we should apply no matter how we might see the millennium in their text. Doesn't matter if you see chapter 19 as a different event or the same event as chapter 20. Doesn't matter how you see the numbers of 1,000, it should be literal, symbolic. Doesn't matter if you see the kingdom or the millennial reign that started or still yet to come, there's a few things that I think should really stir us up from this text as we um, wait for this day to come. So first, as the day approaches, stir one another up to fight the good fight of faith. In this life, it is a fight of faith. I mean, Scripture is clear. It's a fight of faith. It's a fight that can cause us to be weary. It's a fight that can be so difficult at times that we're tempted to, to drop out and leave our profession of faith behind. It's a fight that sometimes is just so heavy that it makes them wonder, like, can we actually win this fight? Or is it even worth fighting? And these are all realities of this present life we live in. Realities of, like, heavy burdens that no doubt plenty of us this morning walked in here carrying. Heavy burdens that are just weighing you down. But for us as we connect as a church family, in light of this day in our text that is approaching, friends, we must continue to help each other to fight the good fight of faith, to care for each other in ways that we're not growing weary in doing good, that we're helping each other to hold fast to our profession, that we're laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely that we're helping each other to fight the good fight of faith by running with endurance the race set before us, running in ways that we are looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, Amen. the very one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame in as, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, as this day is approaching, we have to help each other. Lock arms with one another. Care for one another. To help each other, to fight the good fight. Because what we see in our text, all throughout the book of Revelation, in the end, Christ is the victor. He is the one who did win the war. And in the end, even Satan, the wicked dragon, that deceptive ancient serpent, who is the devil, the great accuser, even he will be captured by Christ. Even he will be bound and thrown into a bottomless pit where he will be chained. Friends, in our text. Say it again as we see this day approaching. May we see this day in ways that's causing us to link arms, to fight the good fight of faith, knowing that in Christ Jesus the outcome of the fight is secure, and our efforts are not in vain. Second, as the day approaches, stir one another up to live more and more with the authority of Christ. Now at times we can get a a little goofy sometimes when we think about like living with like the authority of Christ, where we can maybe start like naming and claiming things under the authority of Christ, or we can start like casting or binding things out with the authority of Christ. Or maybe it's like sinfully stand in opposition of like prideful judgment over others, like under the authority of Christ. So we do need to be careful in terms of how we think through how we're to live with the authority of Christ in this life. You know, life to come. In the text, we see that God's people are present for the casting out of Satan, where he's eternally bound. We see they're present and sit on thrones with the authority to righteously judge. But I don't think that time has come yet. But in this life, that being said, we still have God-given authority that we're entrusted with, that we're to live out in, that we're to walk in as we wait for this great day to come, which is the authority to be witnesses for Christ. To live with the authority to go and make disciples for Christ. So the famous Matthew 28. So Jesus speaking to his disciples and by extension all who have faith in him. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore with this authority and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, as we see the great day approaching in our text, it should put so much wind in our sails to walk in the authority that Christ has, that he's given to his people, to be his witnesses, to go, to make disciples. By the way, I mentioned this a few weeks back, there's a great little book that we have actually in the back that we're giving away. Simply titled Discipling. So if you're looking for some help on how to live with this authority, please just grab a copy on the way out. It's our gift to you. We would love for all in our church family to be stirred up in ways that we're actively seeking to make disciples. Give me one more. As the day approaches, stir one another up in ways that we are living as priests. Priests who minister to one another. And obviously this has a lot of overlap when it comes to walking with the authority and being a witness of Christ, to making disciples for Christ. That is a priestly thing that we do. In our text, in eternal life, we'll reign with Jesus as priest before God the Father and his Christ, where we will keep and protect with him as we reign. But this being priest of God and of Christ, this is actually not something we have to wait until that day comes. This is something that we actually have to walk in Today. First Peter 2 says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual houses, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter 2 then says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So friends, for us, as this day approaches, may that great day, may it stir us up, stir us up in ways that we are so connected to one another, that we live in such community with one another, that we're pouring out our lives to serve one another as priests, Priests who use the different spiritual gifts God has entrusted to us to be a blessing to others. Priests who are seeking to store up treasures in heaven. Priests who come alongside one another to bear one another's burdens and love, to encourage one another, particularly those who maybe are really battling discouragement, whoever they may be better than it. Friends, in the end, even if we were able to get all the details of Revelation 20 correct, even if we see things as clearly as John did in this passage, if we're seeing these things but it's not leading us in ways that we're holding fast to our faith in Christ, that we're not serving one another, that we're not proclaiming Christ to the world around us, we're actually not seeing the text correctly. Church, may God give us the grace to stir one another up all the way to the end, whenever, however that may be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray you help us to rightly divide your word please do guide us to all truth, including the truth that is there for us to see in this passage. Lord, I do pray again that wherever I was in error with what I just shared, please keep that from the people. If there's anything that I said was true and right, I pray that you would bury that deep in our hearts. And Lord, I do pray for our little church family that indeed you would stir us up to love, to good works, to encouragement. Lord, please keep us. Please help us to hold fast our profession. I pray this on Jesus' name. Amen.